Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated and very curious about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. Architecture can be a tough industry, and those patient enough to stick with traditional practice will in many cases desire to either attain a leadership role at a firm, working their way up the ladder of a span of many, many years, or take a chance and open their own company. Almost every architect I've ever met has explored what that might look like. So I'm always excited to talk with architects who launch their own firms. Architects such as my guests today, Sean and Christian, who are co-founders and principals of Office Untitled, often simply known as OU. I've had the pleasure of working with Sean, Christian, and their team since 2020. In a profession that is inherently a team sport, they are fantastic collaborators. And I've seen firsthand their ability to add tremendous value to large-scale projects. In this episode, we talk about how they started, the challenges and the excitement of growing a company, and what their goals are for OU. The project we are talking about today is 6000 Hollywood, a landmark project along Hollywood Boulevard that is currently in the design and planning phase and navigating through the lengthy entitlements process. If, as expected, it gets the necessary approvals, this project will break ground in 2026. A large mixed-use development with affordable and market-rate housing, Class A office space as well as retail and public outdoor space, it's an example of the types of projects LA needs more of as we navigate through the cost-of-living crisis and housing shortage made worse by some of the bureaucracy and nimbyism that has burdened LA in recent years. This episode dives into the project, the history of the site, and how OU approached the design. Enjoy the episode, and please don't forget to subscribe to Building LA. If you have any questions, please email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. All right. Well, Christian, Sean, thank you very much for inviting me to Office Untitled's office here in Culver City, and welcome to the Building LA podcast. Thanks for reaching out. Great to have you. This is great. So we are going to dive right in. Christian, uh, you are from Germany, and Sean, you are from Kansas City, Missouri. What was it that both brought you to LA? And Christian, we'll start with you. I am been here almost like 20, 24 years. And I originally came here kind of on a, studied abroad in Arizona, in um, Arizona State. Went to grad school there for a year in 1999 and 2000 and ended up serendipitously at a grad school job fair at USC for on a weekend in 99 and ended up connecting with a few firms. Then ended up here for an internship in Santa Monica in 2000. And then at the end of that internship, I was lucky enough to get a job offer. My then then boss, Tom Goffigan, at that time. Yeah, and then came back with a visa and rest is now two kids and a wife later. (laughs) Now you've had a full life in Los Angeles. Yeah, how did that happen? And Sean, what what about you? What brought you to LA? No, my history with LA starts almost from the beginning of time for me. My parents were divorced when I was super young and my father lived here. So my Belgian grandmother brought me here for the first time when I was nine months old, pretty much spent a regular amount of time coming and going to to visit my dad here up until the time I was a teenager. So there was always an affinity affinity for, uh, for being in Los Angeles and certainly all the qualities and virtues of Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s were able to be experienced. So when I came back, it was 2005. And at that time, I was already married. But it's been a great ride ever since. So you came back in 2005 
was it for the family reasons that you came back or was it something, something about LA that stood with you that or struck you that you wanted to come back to? I think like so many people, there's just a spirit here of an endless amount of possibilities mm -hmm. that was a draw. And certainly, um, while my father and I are estranged and not close anymore, I think the experience of being with him, you know, for 15 plus years and watching him operate as an artist and seeing Los Angeles sort of unfold over that period of time, that was when the Olympics were here in 84, that it's always just been filled with possibilities. And I've just was enamored with that from the beginning of time. So when I graduated and worked in Europe briefly, my wife and I were looking, we're going to go to New York or Los Angeles. We did a weekend here and. She pointed out that the weather was not bad. <laughs> the food was pretty good. Good observation. Yeah. And uh, that's history. That was sort of the, the deal. Nice. And so, Christian, so you, what, what age were you then when you arrived? And you said you were in college. So, as grad school, yeah, I was 25. School. Okay. Yeah, I was 25 and 99. I ended up in this sort of like road trip, series of road trips to, to LA. And I remember the first one we ever did. Uh, so, like, drove out and I had this old. Uh, white Chevy Caprice station wagon. Nice. Didn't know I had that enough room to fit my, my friends in. And uh, But just like driving six hours from Arizona to LA and then so like going to Palm Springs and then so like hitting so like the outskirts of East LA and then just the very, very first time when you drive through freeways in LA mm -hmm. at night and you literally have a Thomas guide in front of you and you have no idea what each of these places are. You kind of heard of Santa Monica and Beverly Hills, but then you sort of like had to drop off a friend in Huntington Beach and then go all the way back to Culver City. It was just mind-boggling. And then um, first evening we, we went out and so like in the beach and then the next day, so like just spent kind of like touring buildings. And mm -hmm. I think we still have a map in the office actually that I think that Sean, you gave me. It was like this, so like large printed map of LA and somebody had had written in all like different houses. Yeah. So it's this kind of like homemade architecture free, free guide. Google Maps. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, very much. Arguably probably better because Google Maps are almost like hard to <laughs> print everything on one page. But it's been sort of like photographed and photocopied. So it's this sort of like collage almost of like half residential, but pretty, pretty accurate. I think we still have it in the office. Yeah, and that was, definitely it was just it. kind of like the, again, you know, I grew up in a tiny village, like 800 people in Germany mm -hmm. and went to my local elementary school and took a 10 minute bus to high school and then studied in Stuttgart and university. That's sort of like the technical university. There's like a Fachhochschule, there's the university, there's the fine arts academy. And I mean, there's a larger scale there, but not nowhere to dear. And then coming to Arizona, where so like Will Bruder had finished a library a while back. We had like Rick Joy and uh, Wendell Burnett and really these kind of like really unique younger, so like Bruder, mm -hmm. you know, why did me always like a little bit like Banish? So Gunnar Banish was like yeah. the most famous architect in Stuttgart and then all the subsequent large offices in Germany had so like sprung out of that. So it was almost this like nucleus, right? That, that It's almost like the Gary office right? uh -huh. where a lot of like, the people came either from from Tom Maine or from Frank. There was a certain period, obviously not everybody, but but then just the amount of of buildings and the different sky, styles and this, this sort of like a sort of freedom you can do seemingly whatever yeah. and not being restrained by your building next door to your left and right in downtown Stuttgart in this whole like urban environment. But then also kind of like having this Arizona moment in there where you have these houses that are sort of like in these vast pieces of land mm -hmm. that are even compared to LA and then LA obviously have the beach and that's all like um, reading the four ecologies. It's interesting you kind of bring up a lot of a lot of inspiration for you when you're kind of coming over here, right? And you mm -hmm. mentioned like either literature, Kenneth Frampton, Rainer Banham, mentioning architects as well that are in LA and then in Arizona. I'm curious, Sean, kind of going back to like the beginning of your career, what some of the architects that you kind of admired back then in your time of 20s when you were starting out and maybe some of the books that you were yeah. interested in as well. Uh, that's so interesting. We were just having this conversation at dinner the other day where we were talking about the the buildings that, that shaped us, both good and bad. It's interesting. I think I came through school at a time where um, I very vividly remember the first Morphosis books, the gray book, uh, followed by the green book. I think Morphosis was like super influential um, from a standpoint of like, what Tom and, and Michael were just doing in terms of exploration. So I think that definitely had shaped a position on me. I was in wildly in, intrigued by what Eisman was writing and doing at the time. And I say all this because I think in a lot of ways I 
kind of work these things out through my system um, mm-hmm. so that by the time that I actually wanted to practice and be involved in practice, the work that I was much more intrigued with was work by like Chip, Chipperfield, Foster, and just folks that really had a sense of how to put buildings together. In the end, I made a connection with David Lake from Lake Plato, um, who was from San Antonio, and David was really great. Was my first boss as oh, well yeah. as an architect. Yeah, yeah Ted, Ted and David in San Antonio, and did some competitions with them. and And David was really informative for me to just, I think, have a much broader sense of, I think, understanding the kind of agrarian culture that I had been around in the Midwest and how really simple materials could come together. Uh, also, the role that sustainability and kind of building performance could have in a very fundamental level. Um, and then when I came to LA, I I was just telling a lecture series for the Young Architects Forum. And I invited all these offices from, from the West Coast to Kansas City to do lectures. And so it include Michael Maltzen and Larry Scarpa, and a really wide variety of, of folks. And what came out of that, I think, was just the observation that I really wanted to be in LA. Hmm. Larry drove me through the the streets of uh, Venice one night. Uh, we met up with one of his friends who I was expecting like some random old friend to show up. And it was, it was Larkin. Um, and we all oh, had well. beers one time. <laughs> and, um, and I just look back on those times. I was pretty wide-eyed coming to LA. I landed in Clive Wilkinson's office. It's where I met Lindsay. And I really met a lot of great, super talented people here. It was my introduction into workplace at like a super large scale. And Clive was uh, extraordinarily talented and, and attracted really extraordinarily talented people. And so all those experiences sort of just leave a kind of like series of fingerprints on what my professional experience has been. But I would say it's just really just underlined by curiosity. Like mm-hmm. I've never been hyper focused on any one thing, but I've mm-hmm. been really open and curious about everything in the practice of architecture and, and just been really fortunate to just be around, I think, really incredibly talented people all along the way. Hmm. It's interesting for me when I talk to architects, particularly in Los Angeles, that curiosity and the ability to actually have the time and those space to develop that curiosity over time is something that you don't necessarily get in somewhere like London or New York because of the finances and the pressure cooker environment those cities have, plus all the just sort of history of them. LA gives you a much, it's not carte blanche. But there's an opportunity to kind of test out theories and I think have a little bit more ability to create your own identity and a little bit more freedom. I mean, you both mentioned the word freedom, yeah. which I think is at the heart of like why everyone goes west in the first place. You know, I think it's true. I also think the fact that so much work historically has been able to be explored through single family housing mm. is that the scale of risk for individuals working with a young or not yet established office is fairly low. And so it allows, I think, a lot of offices to cut their teeth and figure things out and then scale up and into buildings um, with an established point of view. And I don't think you always get that in New York or London or, or many of the larger cities that the scale of work wants to sort of jump immediately to an institutional level. And Los Angeles has just always had this really rich single family exploratory culture kind of in its ethos, mm-hmm. which I think still exists. And it's helping, I think, offices emerge, much like what I described about David Lake and, and others in other places, but just do it at a, in a very different way. Hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the time that you've both spent teaching architecture. For me, the benefits of teaching also kind of working as an architect are probably abundantly clear. Students will come at a problem in interesting ways that may spark an idea of something you're working on in the office. It adds credibility to your day job, particularly as a young architect who's kind of trying to start out their career. And it's also you're able to provide like an articulate critique on architectural design. It's a muscle you have to train, I think, over time. I'm curious, though, in your words, you've both spent a lot of time teaching. And Christian, we'll start with you. Why you pursued that at different parts of your career and what you kind of gained from, from teaching? One of the biggest rewards from teaching is you learn to be an editor mm-hmm. and you're you're not involved in the work as you are just by nature because it's not your own project. But at the same time, it allows you to kind of explore things with, through your students and with your students, right? Which is like now, I mean, our office is like almost 50 people and that's almost a skill now that you don't really learn in school when you go to school yourself. But when you teach, you learn how to talk to people and work with your staff and, and talent and say like, hey, here's something you explored that idea. 
and come back. And that's kind of like how we, I think, still operate, right? It's been, the office has never been sort of like, hey, here's one style. This is how we should explore. And there's some merit to that as well, right? But I think for us, it was always like, hey, we wanted to do amazing work. And I think the teaching was always like that. There was always mm-hmm. so so many approaches to one problem that is like, this is incredible, right? The diversity of that was always super fascinating, and then also like the different personalities and how people approach things and how to be able to motivate motivate people and, and help them, you know, to sort of succeed in life and kind of mentor them in a larger way. Sean, has mentorship been sort of both you as a mentor and you as a mentee been a big part of your career as well? Yeah, I mean, I I would definitely say I think the the teaching part, I think of it much more professional teaching than like academic. Although I've always been interested in that and I have done it occasionally and for anyone who's listening would be open to an invitation to do it again. But um, <laughs> I think I think I've always found the day-to-day opportunity to mentor people the, the place where I have something to offer folks. And not that being in an academic environment doesn't afford you that, but I just, I've always enjoyed helping people accelerate through the profession as quickly as they can. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's providing air cover. Sometimes that's just helping navigate what's in front of them. Some of that's just encouraging patients and Mm -hmm. like what can come. But a lot of times it's just making connections Mm -hmm. and it's a wherewithal to be able to say, man, I know two incredible people that you should know. I don't know where it's going to go, but let me introduce you and like you follow up with them. And I think that has been something I've just done from, from the very beginning and Probably the thing I'm probably the most excited about because I love hearing stories like, oh, we met and four years later, something incredible came out of it, you know? So can you tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from both working at Gensler to starting Office Untitled? Christian left in 2011, just getting ready to get married, moving to Portland. You know, I think at that point in time, we were sort of comparing notes about the work that was happening outside of Gensler that we were both really excited about. He had several people. And at that time, my wife and I were also doing some some work as well. I think Ben left in 2013, and the two of them formed what at that time was RNA, right? Yep. And I remember coming over and visiting them. At that time, I was a, I was a partner at, at Gensler. My studio was growing pretty rapidly. And I visited them in Santa Monica. And I, don't know, I think there were probably at least six or eight people there. Pretty good. Certainly a great showing for like a young office. Like it was inspiring to see the work that they were doing. And I think they were they were uh, fast on the move. And in 2015, through sort of a series of conversations, BNIM decided to effectively fund a studio for for myself. And so it afforded me the chance to to leave Gensler, mm-hmm. start my own studio. And shortly after that that studio was started, we 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 won a fairly significant size project in the arts district, which allowed us to hire right out of the gate. And about a year and a half later, I for a multitude of reasons went to Lindsay and was like, hey, I don't know if this whole uh, partnership works with BNIM. They've been incredibly gracious, but what do you think about maybe trying to do something different? And so I called Christian on a Saturday morning. Actually, I think I texted him on Friday and was like, hey. Were you, were you in contact at the time or was this yeah. a text that came out of the blue? A little bit. No, I mean, we, we obviously, you know, we were both super busy. You know, mm-hmm. I think I had a, I, I think Celine was already born. Yeah, 20, yeah. yeah she was like yeah. two and I just had moved back. But we always kind of stayed in contact and I think when when John came to the office, when we were like, I think it was more closer to four or five people in Santa Monica, we were across the old for like fire station on Seventh Street, and had to rent this like the back office from so like an ad agency our friend owned, and mm-hmm. and we had just won a really great great project with a subsidiary for BCG Digital Ventures, an interiors project actually. And Sean, I think, was sent over to kind of like check in with what, what we're up to. And I think there there was sort of like really um an overall a great affinity from each other. Again, you know we. Ben, Sean, and I so like sat next to each other for I would say a year and a half, every day working on one project together, you know, many late nights and it's sort of like a great bonding experience. And then again, you know, you work with somebody a year and a half on a project and you yeah. you really know each other. Right. And I think there's so like a general familiarity, which is you think really need and the hard part is doing a partnership is finding the partner. <laughs> did you have conversations about what the vision of the company was when you did join forces and 
I always I'm, I'm curious what those conversations were like about what what, what is this? Uh, what what are we creating? Too. It's been like what is what was this? I like mean, 20, 2017. Yeah, um, like six years ago. So we're going on a strong six six plus years ago. I always tell the story. Like I came over, we had coffee at Christian's uh, rented house. We went to the office, met with Ben. It's like on a Saturday. We thought it'd be good to probably like get together on for dinner on Monday and maybe like talk a little bit more specific since we were all very much like dancing around the like the perimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to the loudest restaurant we could possibly find in Mar Vista. <laughs> Lindsay and I sat on one side, Christian and Ben sat on the other side, and we just effectively nodded the entire time because you couldn't hear what the other side was saying. But we were a lot of smiling, a lot of nodding. We ate, we drank, we walked out. I said, I think that went well, Lindsay. She's like, yeah, they seem to be into it. And I think what I've heard is basically the same thing was said on their side. And shortly after that, sort of like we ran, we ran forward. But I, I would echo what Christian said. I think there's just so much commonality out of those years working together that I think you kind of knew what you were getting into. But at the same time, it's not singular from a standpoint of like any one person sets it. It's that everyone is philosophically aligned and it sort of meanders. And I think that meandering is what keeps it super interesting because at times it's being driven maybe a bit more by Ben or maybe a bit more by Christian or maybe a bit more by myself or it starts to emerge from the staff. But I think the point is, is like the direction was, it's almost set from the beginning, kind of those early years of like, we knew what we all wanted to do and the kind of work we wanted to accomplish. Interesting. All right. Okay. So I want to talk about kind of looking ahead. Is there a type of project that Office Untitled is dying to work on? Is there a typology or a client that you kind of seek out as saying, you know, we want to do an addition to the Getty Center? I'm just a bad example. But is is there something you talk through about something you want to do? I mean, there's always like the classic dream project. I think what's typical for us, if I'm so like thinking out loud, I think that one of the best projects we had is the project we hadn't done before, mm-hmm. like a brand new typology. I mean, we had done, we'd won that BCG project at that point against two other much larger firms, 2013, and the client hired us specifically. I want to hire the architect who's never done a consultant office because we're not a consultant. Mm. So traditionally, it's been, we always really enjoyed and I would say, what do you say, flourished that with clients who are really want to push the limits and want to want to come up with something that hasn't been done before. As much as that sounds like a cliche, you in want one an way. inventive client who's who doesn't have an idea, doesn't have a set yeah. idea yeah. about what yeah. they want. And I think one of our, I remember like early on, I think we sat down and made like like what are the ten the ten things that we want to credo so I don't know, ten rules right They're like the Bruce Mao right what was that the rules of creativity right and and it was like one was basically reinvent traditional typologies and always approach a project with a beginner's mind. And then we had tweaked that and we then would parachute in experts. Like, for example, we're now doing our first large scale private school in most Hollywood, the Gindi Maimonides Academy, like new gym building for 40,000 square feet and incredible project, incredible client, but we've never done a school before. But what we have done, we have done some entitled, some really challenging projects in a city that values a close interactions between city staff, the planning staff, the neighbors, residents, and an architect who can build bridges and find consensus, yet deliver something that is highly design-oriented. I think West Hollywood has, and West Hollywood is a little bit of our breeding ground, right? So like we were, was where our first project was fairly early on after like a year working in the city, we had like six more from a high rise to office buildings, an incredible scale for at that point, like a 10 person office, 15 person office. But I think that was also like that nimbleness and relation and familiarity with a larger scale. You know, Ben Sean and I had worked, had met at uh, Ritz Carlton LA Live. So 650 stall tower, one of the first tower, one of the only tower that came out of the brick recessions by like a matter of like six weeks before the financing had would have closed. But it's just like that ability to scale between really small and, and nimble to like fairly large and tall. But I think that lack of ego mm-hmm. and kind of like building consensus. And Sean, that's like the project that he had related to, you know, I think that they, what is now almost finished, the EVA project in the Arts District, right, was like 470 units at that time. And effectively, right, one of the key projects that really 
set a model for how you present a project to get entitled. I agree with everything Christian said. I think we've done really well with, with so many clients. I think the ones that just continue to find the office such interesting as these ultra ambitious clients. Like they're, this goes back to like Tom and I said earlier about like why we both came to LA. I think those same types of, of mindsets are seem to be attracted to the office, being in the office and being part of the office. And now that's just happening at a scale that's just wildly different than it was even five, six years ago. So so we're gonna we're gonna change tack a little bit and talk about the Hollywood project, uh, the Toyota dealership. But before we do, we're sitting in your office. Right on the other side of this wall is a large model of a Burning Man sculpture. And because I know the two of you relatively well at this point, I know that Burning Man does have a little bit of influence in this office, maybe a little bit more than than most architecture firms, I would say. We have a conference room named after it. Right. So can you speak to how Burning Man and Office Untitled came to be sort yes. of synonymous with each no, other? I mean, uh, you know, obviously, I think I'm not sure. I mean, there's basically two kinds of people, those who've been to Burning Man and those who haven't been to Burning Man, right? Maybe those who want to go to Burning Man. Unfortunately, in the camp, right? has not been. <laughs> the person who we rented the, our first office from in Santa Monica, he went to Burning Man once and then decided to go back the next year and got married at Burning Man. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and we've sort of like seen pictures and stuff and, um, you know, and you kind of like follow a little bit and look into it. And there was just this super fascination with like this, with A, music, but B, the majority of like really creating art without restriction in this wild west mm-hmm. <laughs> in a super harsh climate. Sounded really fun. <laughs> and then COVID happened. Um, ben didn't go at that time. And then we ended up going last year again with Ben. And kind of the same thing happened, right? This was a little bit more. We had started our own camp with some some friends. Didn't do any art piece yet. And then we saw like we're on the playa. And it's like, I think I think two years is good. I think we're ready. And then so we came back. And again, very serendipitously ended up meeting um an engineer who did a lot of work at Burning Man. So, but at the same time, we had done a really cool kind of bamboo project, a, a gas station of the future built out of bamboo in, in Malaysia. Okay. And a project unfortunately got never built. And it was all centered on like sustainability, um, so like showcasing, but also like really helping the bamboo as a material in that country. We ended up fire testing it and getting sort of like a certification as a building material. And then, so we ended up reconnecting with this bamboo builder we met in this project in 2017, and then kind of ended up working with together and then pitching a few art concepts, artist concepts. Because I think the one thing for us also, we're not your traditional architecture and interiors firm. Either we do come sort of from a from that background a little bit and on the out of the corporate world, but the I think the common thread was always to to do really really unique work, and and that sometimes kind of like goes beyond a little bit beyond architecture. And that was kind of like a really cool kind of form to test that, right? At the same time, we had started to sort of like design a, a larger visitor center for a big like tech client that we were kind of like starting to toy ideas with that. So that was almost like seemed like a natural testing ground. It was almost like a prototype sculpture. And then, yeah, so now we're, Little Bamboo is chipping right now from, it's a 30 by 30 by 15 foot tall bamboo grid that is so like has these organic shaped tunnels carved out mm-hmm. um, with sort of like this pulsating light at the rhythm of a heart. It's called Heart Burst. And that's our, our contribution. And then so, so like the first one. And then we saw like a member sitting in Burning Man one night and kind of like, I think that would be really incredible to really, A, continue that bamboo work, but also as a, as a cultural moment for the office mm. and really because a lot of times is these these little projects that are not necessarily for a client but you also you have this great opportunity to curate your own work your own program and we have to fundraise it all fund it ourselves with friends and family and donors but then hopefully there's some larger good that comes out of it right a we want to not burn the sculpture and find another place to re-erect it or potentially host it in a gallery I was going to ask, how does the design process work for the Burning Man sculpture? Is this an opportunity for someone who's in your office and maybe a little bit embedded in the CA world, for example, to just have a bit of a creative release? Yeah, I mean, it, it's still, it's a it's a full building project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just an accelerated one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you still have all the conceptual and generative parts of the early stages of, of the process. There's really no permit set though, right? Well, you know, you There's do, actually a building department. Yeah, you do have really? a building department and you, you you do have to provide engineer drawings to a certain level and plan for things like 
people on or near the, the structure. There's a whole logistics element to this, which is the ability to prefab, you know, not on the playa. So how you do that in here in Culver City, pack that back up. This is, you know, flat packing, get it out and on the playa, then be able to survey and implement it. I mean, there's a whole sequence there that really pulls on the expertise and abilities of so many people in the office. So there's people, some people are only getting front end sort of uh, involvement. Some are involved in the entire thing. Some are only want to just go out and build. It's been great to see sort of the, not only the origin of where this came from, but also just the participation across the office. It's, it is part of the ethos of the office. And the conference rooms here when we moved in are, you know, Coachella, Woodstock, Bonnaroo, and Burning Man. And so there's always been an ethos of understanding what each one of those experiences meant, both as a cultural sort of experience, but also a place to, to be curious and, and try things, experiment. And I think that's just part of what the office is. So to go and take that on the road and do it at Burning Man, I think, is the ultimate gift that the firm could give to any, anything and to do it there just seems spot on. I love it. So I want to jump from Burning Man sculpture to, is it a sculpture? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Burning Man sculpture. To a installation. installation. Okay. To a very different project on Hollywood Boulevard, which was announced fairly recently, I think in kind of September, November, September, October of last year. It's on the site of the longstanding Hollywood Toyota dealership, which occupies a full can't even believe it, 3.7 acre site along Hollywood Boulevard. It has, and correct me if any of this is wrong, but has 350 units, 44 of which are very low on income tenants, and 136,000 of office, square feet of office. So one of the aspects of this project, which is so intriguing, is quite frankly, its location. So in looking at this site ahead of this interview, I kind of looked at the block where it's located and the block between Gower on the west and Bronson on the east, and you've got Hollywood to the north and Sunset to the south, it feels to me like a little microcosm of Los Angeles. You have a large new office building to the southeast, the Netflix epic building. You have a kind of a couple of little classic strip malls in LA that are kind of ubiquitous in LA. You I also like, have, I love, love how you call them classic. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like in LA it totally. is though. It is. It's, it's, yeah, very it's much. part of the typology. Yeah. Omnipresent. Exactly. And then you have a series of, you have a couple of cut through streets where you have single family homes. You also have dingbats as well. You have also a little dog park. And then Stone's Throwaway is, I think it's the 101 on sort of the northeast of the site. So it's got like a little bit of everything. I want you to tell me like how you got involved with this project in the first place. Sure. Well, this is part of the name of the firm, right? It was the the untitled part was to be intentionally ambiguous about the mm -hmm. spectrum with which the firm could cover. So we could have a spectacular like at, at Burning Man, and then we could do high rise projects as well. And I think that's what's always been the the draw. But in terms of the Hollywood Toyota side, or more specifically the six thousand Hollywood Boulevard side, you know that that side comes from a relationship that a that the firm's had and that I've had for, for many, many years. It originally did, dates back to 2008 uh, with that client um, oh, wow. that I've just known for many, many years. They, too, have gone through leadership changes and, and people have become leaders and on their own side. And so we won that through an RFP process, competed with firms much more established and certainly larger than ours to win that project. And I think your assessment of the location is quite accurate. But it possesses an enormous amount of potential in that it has the chance to really effectively become the sort of eastern end beacon for Hollywood Boulevard, which kind of dribble drabbles along as you go east. Uh, as you mentioned, the Gowers, you know, you're beginning to hit the stopping point for what has been the, the walk of stars and walk of fame and really anchor the east side of, of Hollywood in a very different way. So the client prompted us with that as the opportunity and a really unusual program mix. Um, again, this kind of unusual part, which I think we lean into and really take advantage of. And thus we were off to the races uh, all last year. Just um, help me, put me kind of on Hollywood Boulevard in front of that site right now. 
Is it a pedestrian-friendly experience? Do I want to hang out there? You know, I think Hollywood, like much of Los Angeles, I think has just really been challenged throughout the pandemic to find a pedestrian-friendly version of itself when retail was was challenged with with activity. You know, homeless sort of ballooned because of the camping, the ability for camping to be pervasive through through Hollywood and other parts of the city. But, you know, right there now is an incredibly successful uh, Toyota dealership, uh, generationally owned by the Sullivan family. But there's also an industry that's just changed ra- rapidly in the last decade. And that amount of footprint isn't what they need. They know there's a higher and better use for, for that land. So the building massing is pretty interesting. Uh, there is, I think, three components, I right. would say. Right, right. I was going to say three buildings, but that's that's not accurate. No, it's I mean it's a seven hundred and fifty plus foot long frontage along Hollywood mm-hmm. Boulevard. So I think the tactic has been to effectively do you know three different projects side by side um, that work in collaboration with one another, as opposed to like one big monolithic project. So you have the tower on the east side, four hundred feet. On the far west side, you have the office building, hundred and plus thousand square feet. And then in the middle is a set of village buildings, which are, you know, three to four story buildings, really acting as a space that could be, you know, the ultimate kind of live workspace, which could kind of bridge the gap between residential and the tower and office on the west hand side. But what that does create is effectively a kind of valley or a slot through the middle of the site, which preserves the north south view to the Hollywood sign because you're effectively on access from our site. So for those folks that are at Emerson or Netflix or any any of the residents to the south, their view of the Hollywood sign is effectively preserved by taking that approach. Um, so it's sort of a, you know, you pull all the masking to the margins and then leave a, a view corridor through the middle. Was that a choice that was made by your team or was that something that was decided in conversation with the Sullivan family or, or external uh, bodies? I think, I think pretty early on it was always part of it. I mean, there was certainly a kind of early sketch that's not far off from where it is now. I mean, we looked at a lot of different versions of what the massing is, just the way the office works, okay. uh, way we always go through things. But I would say that generally speaking, the the massing as it exists now with the western block and an eastern taller piece, the eastern piece being that kind of beacon opportunity is sort of endured from the from the first interview that Christian, myself, and Lindsay sat in with the with the Sullivan family and, and their team. So the project was, I think, announced publicly, again, I think around fall of last year. I don't know the exact date. Renderings were published. A little bit, a few details were announced about the project. Where are you in the entitlements process on the project? Your assessment of the timeline is exactly right. I mean, we, we released at the end of last year, urbanized, and a number of other outlets covered it. Mm-hmm. And now we're in that series of uh, conversations with, uh, you know, UDS and the city, which just allow it to go through the through the, the process. And the good news is, is this represents a, a fairly substantial commitment to housing in Hollywood. Yeah. Obviously, there's a change in the council district there over the lifespan of this project. So I think they're just kind of continually... Uh, Refamiliarizing the incoming administration with with what's there, but generally speaking, the project continues to move forward, and we're optimistic in terms of its ability to move forward quickly. I mean, it's an interesting climate to to do tall buildings. It certainly is. I mean, it seems like the need is is clear. Obviously, mm-hmm. adding more housing seems politically advantageous at this point. Considering that, though, how long do you anticipate that you will be in this entitlements process and? before you get the go-ahead? I mean, if you were to hazard a guess, because I know it's unpredictable. Sure. But there is a schedule out there somewhere where there is a date where you've been approved. Sure. Well, I think always with entitlements, many, many unknowns are out there. So you can go anywhere between, you know, 30 months and five or six years. They can be all, all over the place. I would say that generally speaking for the 6,000 Hollywood project is that the commentary and the feedback has generally been positive, which typically lends itself to a more speedy timeline as opposed to ones that just run head in into every every obstacle so i'm optimistic that Mm. we'll be on the shorter side than the long side of that so you're you're a 50 person company we're in your space now i think the entire office is i believe in here or do you have a you have other folks in portland is that right no we have uh, five people in new york right now Five people in new york we have one in london and one in germany okay definitely a growing firm this project seems at the outset to be a jump up in scale for your office. Can you speak to sort of how 
you are handling that as a firm and wh- how you see this as being a trajectory for your future projects in the office? I will say just from a structural point of view, I think, you know, part of the the change that we made last year was uh, to make Lindsay the COO of the company. You know, she's helping from an operational standpoint, I think, build stability from the way that the firm operates, both here in Los Angeles and, and outside of LA. And I think also just sort of looking at a leadership group that's able to scale to be able to respond to that. But I mean, in some ways, I think the natural progression for the firm is to just have more and more impactful projects of a wider variety of type. Are you excited for this project to be not a template, that's not the right word, but to give, provide proof and maybe some confidence to whether it be developers or sovereign wealth funds, whatever it might be, that Office Entitled is, has the capabilities to take on this scale of project, and which is really in terms of LA, this is on the upper echelon of in terms of of project scale. There, there's not a lot of other projects that are happening right now that are, that are larger. Yeah, I, I would say this is a stepping stone. I mean, Christian can elaborate on the Tower on Sunset that's been in the office for a while and that we've been sort of looking at. It. Part of it's just that these projects tend to evolve through the process. Meandering, um, meandering process. You know, but I, I would say that project was a breakthrough project for the firm. You know, it was an incredible project and it continues to get attraction and it's been recognized as you know, unbuilt project by the AIA. Then you have 6,000 Hollywood, which is like a next scale jump. And there's a whole host of other things that are now, some of which are out and some of which are, will be out soon in the, in, in the near term future that just continue to show the growth of the scale of the, the projects in the firm. Yeah. And I think also urbanistically, I think we, we always loved high rise just as a billing type. You know, yeah. I think it's one of the most efficient and dense projects types you can you can build so in terms of like sustainability the amount of space you save we always toyed around doing like so like a study of like what if you put all of la in like high-rise projects seven stories or taller how much but space those, you would use those studies are quite depressing yeah, actually yeah. <laughs> because yeah, it's, exciting. It's, it's exciting well, yeah. but it shows I mean, the but amount but of wasted same, space yeah but at the same time also it's sort of like the challenge right i think uh, LA and so much of if it's traffic. I was just in Mexico City, and at uh, five o'clock in Mexico City, the traffic is so, so standstill. Right? It's like it makes um, four or five on a Friday look like a autobahn, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. But in terms of like, how do you integrate such a building at that scale into a neighborhood context? Right? And I think how do you activate the streetscape, especially along Sunset? Right? I think that's. Really incredible questions and super. Uh, you know, I went for a long time. When I first moved here, I lived like not not too far away from the Hollywood site. Um, so I remember the walkability, but also the diversity and, and scales. And what Sean described, you have this sort of what would you describe, right? You have so sort of like this wheelchair corridor, high rises, and then you select the parking areas behind, and then you have like you know medium dense like seven story building, and it goes down to like more like a low, low rise portions like the dingbats and yeah it's been just a super incredible time to be an architect in la and i think also like that notion of residential design architecture and different typologies you know, we are, we're working on some micro units now and some cool living right i think there's so many different kind of ways where you take that to really try to solve the housing housing crisis we're working on kind of like a new type of a homeless shelter that really kind of can leverage existing vacant office space to, to some degree to really can you, kind can of like talk, fill. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is it so? You said that was a project that's in the office. Yeah. So we we've we've looked at obviously some of our clients have vacant office spaces, and there's yeah. like a, a large impending amount of office space that goes back potentially right. goes back to banks, right? Especially not just A class but B class and C class, right? At the same time, you have this incredibly amount of homeless people who need housing, right? But the housing itself doesn't solve it. It's oftentimes the sort of like availability and the hiring of support staff, yeah. right? Caseworkers that really can help solve it. And uh, so we kind of set out, what if we actually try to come up with a way to reuse, because right now the whole office or residential conversion, is just doesn't pencil. It's just too many roadblocks, both timeline-wise and, and fee-wise and cultural-wise. Very so, few cases of that. Yeah, way. so we, we kind of like say, what if you kind of came up with a sort of like hybrid model of this sort of like temporary or also permanent, but shelters that don't require as much infrastructure changes. So it's faster, it's cheaper, um, it's more nimble. But it also then would you when you do actually design a shelter, what works and what doesn't work. So we 
we set some funding aside and we have like five or six people in the office who are working on this. And then we so like reached out to county supervisor, the county team put us in touch with a series of, of homeless shelter operators, working with brokers, some data analysts. So really trying to find, are there some properties in LA that are more suited than others? And what are those and how those can be done? So there's a series of case studies. We also expanded to the Portland. There's an ex-Airbnb headquarters at the Bacon Block that is hard to rent right now because Portland also, as LA downtown, has a big homeless issue. And um, so the the goal is to take on, you know, as recently as six months, fully usable and build out office building um, for wow. a large tech company and to convert that nimbly to a, a homeless shelter, right? And try to pencil it out. But, and there's a lot of roadblocks, but I think in a way, it's a way to, for us to a, pay back and to add a little bit of general conversation and potentially discover something that could work quite well. It's a fascinating idea. So this has been a great conversation, kind of going from the what you know why you both became architects and the inspirations and and then the remarkable offices offices you created here, and then obviously the the Hollywood project. Uh, I do have one last question for you both, which is, what are your three favorite buildings in LA? But it's also kind of a fun one. So Sean, I'll start with you. What are your three favorite buildings in Los Angeles? I'm going to pick two, and then I'm going to pick a space because I don't have a third building. The first building is actually, I love being at CyArk. Mm. Um, I think that building is just super, I just love being in that space. Um, I didn't go to CyArk. I haven't taught at CyArk. I just, for me, I think it's the sort of industrial nature of those buildings, the kind of long, like workhorse buildings, single story buildings. There's something quite amazing about about that space. And I think this, this sort of hermit crab-like quality of, these interventions that have been done there and also outside just make me really that building. I actually really love uh, Grand Park and uh, City Hall. I just think it's hmm. a building that's for me. I see it when I fly in. Yeah. I use it as a landmark. It's always been it's a great public space. And then the space that I'm always enamored with and I go to because it just sort of has this weird underbelly is Lower Grand Avenue. So. Lower Grand is the space underneath Grand Avenue, um, and it's this weird spot where the city becomes kind of sectionally overlapped. It's made its way into so many movies uh, in L.A., but you know, classic kind of oval, large openings that happen on Grand, the way that sun comes through that, lights uh, Lower Grand, again, the sort of like blue-collar, like workhorse part of that street is just yeah. really, really fascinating, so... I would it has, say those it has a spaces. cinematic quality. As it's, it's quite cinematic, yes. It's, yeah. it, it photographs well. Nice. In a very dramatic way. It speaks to the fact that there are these moments when you're driving around LA, not walking, but driving, where you suddenly realize that you are driving within a scene of a movie that you yeah. watched you know, a long, long time ago. And it's still, to this day, I mean, I haven't lived here as long as you both have, but it's exciting when you get that it's like little glimmer of a moment. You're like, oh, yeah. Remember, Clint Eastwood was standing over there. And it's it's silly, but it is part of what adds the magic of, of yeah. being in LA. I don't know if you've seen this. This uh, Los Angeles plays itself is actually an entire piece based on the city of Los Angeles as a substantial character in so many movies. And what you described, either it be chase scenes down the LA River, mm -hmm. you know, dropping through, you know, in the movie The Game, um, you know, through the hotel. Like, mm -hmm. it's just, I think there's so many parts of the city and also the region which have made its way into cinema that I think it's one of the things I'm most excited about Los Angeles is that it continues to reinvent itself. And I think the firm just has a chance to be part of that and Maybe Christian's three buildings will reestablish a new reinvention. But <laughs> well, yeah, I'll pivot to you, Christian. But I did notice you had three noted down, and then you crossed one out. So I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious what your three are. Yeah, can I have four? You can have four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is uh, the Dunsmuir Flats by Gregory Ain. I'm sure if you know those, it's like two duplexes, but it's basically like four apartments, mm -hmm. um, two story. And um, I was fortunate enough to live in one of them for. For two years. I was fortunate enough to go to a party there. Walker <laughs> oh, wow. should live there. <laughs> yeah, a hat party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a little hot for a hat party, but there's a theme. We stick to it. And then the, that was, but it was unique about that because it's like, it was very simple. Um, it's on Pico, north of Pico, kind of like west of La Brea. Mm. And, uh, and here basically, 
these two duplexes there are basically like two almost like square footprint two-story buildings slightly rotated so shifted so mm-hmm. so like you have this light from three sides incredibly well so like combined you have this so like staircase in the middle and then the shower seat sits kind of like stacks on the head clearance for the stair landing then you come up that tiny stair you sort of like have this little like mini courtyard that separates the one bedroom from the other that's so incredibly designed um very open ground floor so you see like the whole garden space in it. and it was really incredible the second one is a tower on wiltshire boulevard just left of la country club called wiltshire terrace mm-hmm. yeah which was actually done by i think grun if I'm not mistaken, but it was unique about that was I think it was like the first, like the tallest tower when it was built. I think it was like the 60s or 50s. And it was unique because it kind of like had these sort of like atrium space that was connecting like three bedrooms together. And this like recessed, but it creates this beautiful kind of like Tetris facade pattern. And then the third one was a building that's been demolished, but I think I actually saw it when I first came in 2000. But it was like, I think it was like in the 101 and uh, close to Hollywood, I think like somewhere on Sunset or a little bit east for that, or pretty close to downtown. But it was this little village of these white geodesic dome that was kind of like a commune. And it's been demolished a a while back. I'll send you pictures, but it's pretty, pretty incredible. And I found it in like one of the little pocket architecture guides. And uh, and we went there and like walked around and like, talked to the people who lived there at that time. <laughs> and hindsight felt like Burning Man in the middle of LA. It was these these blazy plastic shell bucket yeah. domes. Wow. You know the ones where it's like the the round that's not like the hexagon. It's actually the the round yes, versions, yeah. right? With the so like the uh, fish eye yep. ones. And then the f- last one was was because I was just recently I uh, drove from Silver Lake all the way to the beach on Santa Monica Boulevard. Mm-hmm. and on a, like a saturday afternoon it was just like f- first of all we drove like 10 of our sites which was pretty pretty great to, to i haven't had done for for a while but then just really that progression of the different communities and cultures you really kind of cross this kind of like cat scan crossing la all from all the way east of downtown to, to the beach is quite staggering we'll let that one count even though that's not a building that's why we'll let that one count yeah Christian, Sean, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Sam. It's been great to have you here. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.